Chapter 9 of The Golden Book of Dutch Navigators by Hendrik Willem van Loon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jane Bennett, Melbourne, Australia. Chapter 9 Schouten and Le Maire Discover a New Strait. This is the story of a voyage to a country which did not exist. The men who risked their capital in this expedition hoped to reach a territory which we now call Australia. It was not exactly the Australia which we know from our modern geography. It was a mysterious continent of which there had been heard many rumours for more than half a century. What the contemporary traveller really hoped to find we do not know, but we have the details of an expedition to this new land called Terra Australis Incognita, or the Unknown Southern Land, an expedition which left the harbour of Huon on the 15th of June of the year 1615. Huon is a little city on the Zyder Sea, just such a little city as Enkhuizen, from which Linschoten had set out upon his memorable voyage. This voyage had a short preface which has little to do with navigation, but much with provincial politics and commercial rivalry. The original idea of allowing everybody to found his own little Indian trading company after his own wishes had been a bad one from an economic point of view. There was so much competition between the three dozen little companies that all were threatened with bankruptcy. Therefore a financial genius, the eminent leader of the province of Holland, John of Barneveld, took matters into his own capable hands and combined all the little companies into one large East India trading company, a commercial body which existed until the year 1795 and was a great success from start to finish. Among the original investors there had been a certain Jacques Lemaire, a native of the town of Antwerp, who had fled when the Spaniards took that city for the second time and who now lived in Amsterdam with his wife and his 22 children. He was respected for his ability and was chosen into the body of directors who managed the affairs of the East India Company. But Le Maire was not the sort of man to stay in the harness with others for a very long time. He complained that the company cared only for dividends and immediate profits. He wanted to see the ships of his adopted country make war upon the Spaniards, besides trying to steal their colonies. After a few years, Le Maire quarrelled openly with several of the other directors, and he planned to form an Indian company of his own. In Amsterdam, however, he was so strongly opposed by his enemies, who were still in the old company, that he was forced to leave the city. He went to live in a small village nearby and continued to work upon his schemes. With Hendrik Hudson, he discussed a plan of reaching the Indies by way of the northwestern route, a route which was as yet untried. To King Henry IV of France, he made the offer of establishing a new French company as a rival of the mighty Dutch institution. All these many ideas came to nothing. Henry IV was murdered, and Hudson went into the service of another employer. Le Maire was obliged to invent something new. He was in a very difficult position. The Estates General of the Dutch Republic 
had given to their one East India Company a practical monopoly of the entire Indian trade. They decided that no Dutch ships should be allowed to travel to the Indies except through the Strait of Magellan or by way of the Cape of Good Hope. That meant that the entrance to the Indian Spice Islands was closed at both sides. It was, of course, easy enough to sail through the Strait or past the Cape. There was nobody to prevent one from doing so. But when one tried to trade in India on his own account, the Dutch company sent their men of war after the intruder. These wanted to know who he was and how he came within the domain of the company. Since there were only two roads, he must have trespassed in one way or the other upon the privileges of the company. Therefore, the company, which was the sovereign ruler of all the Indian islands, had the right to confiscate his ships. If Lemaire could only find a new road to India, he would not interfere with the strict rules of the Estates General. His ships could then trade in the Pacific and in the Indian Ocean, and he would be the most dangerous rival of the old company, which he had learned to hate since the days when he had first invested 60,000 guilders and had been one of the directors. For a long time, Lemaire studied books and maps and atlases and finally came to the conclusion that there must be another way of getting from the Atlantic into the Pacific besides the long and tortuous Strait of Magellan. And if there were a strait, there must be land on the other side of it. If only this could be discovered, Lemaire would be rich again and could laugh at the pretensions of the East India Company. Lemaire didn't go to Amsterdam to get the necessary funds for his expedition. He interested the good people of the little town of Hoorn, and with a fine prospectus about his unknown southern land, he soon got all the money he needed. The Estates General were willing to give him all the privileges he asked for, provided he did not touch the monopolies of their beloved East India Company. Even Prince Maurice interested himself sufficiently in this voyage to a new continent to give Lemaire a letter of introduction which put the expedition upon more official footing. Two small ships were bought, and 87 men were engaged for two years. On the largest ship of the two, called the Eantracht, there were 65 men, and on the small yacht, the Hoorn, there were 22. William Cornelis Schouten was commander-in-chief. He had made three trips to India by way of the Cape. Two sons of Lemaire, one called Jacques, the other Daniel, went with the expedition to keep a watchful eye upon everything and to see to it that their father's wishes were carefully executed. The ships were forbidden to enter the Strait of Magellan. In case of need, they might return by way of the Cape but they must be careful not to trade with any of the Indian princes who now recognised the rule of the East India Company. The main purpose of the expedition was to find the unknown continent in the Pacific. For this main purpose, they must sacrifice everything else. And so they left Huon and they sailed toward the south. It was more than 20 years since the first expedition had sailed for India. The route across the Atlantic was well known by this time. There is nothing particular to narrate about the dull trip of three months 
enlivened only by the attack of a large monster, a sort of unicorn, which stuck his horn into the ship with such violence that he perished and left behind the horn, which was found when the ships were overhauled near the island of Porto Desiado, when Van Noort too had made ready for his trip through the strait many years before. The cleaning of the smaller of the two vessels, however, was done so carelessly that it caught fire. Since it had been placed on a high bank at high tide, and the water had ebbed, there was no water with which to extinguish the conflagration. Except for the guns, the entire ship and its contents were lost. The sailors were taken on board the Eendrat, and on the 13th of January of the year 1616, the ship passed by the entrance of the Strait of Magellan and began to search for a new thoroughfare into the Pacific farther toward the south. On the 23rd of January, the most eastern promontory of Tierra del Fuego was seen. The next day, the high mountains of another little island further toward the east appeared in the distance. Evidently, Le Maire had been right in his calculations. There was another strait, and the Eendracht had discovered it. Such big events are usually very simple affairs. The southernmost point of Tierra del Fuego was easily reached, and was called Cape Horn, after the town which had equipped the expedition. The Eendracht now sailed further westward, and in less than two weeks found herself in the Pacific Ocean. On the 12th of February, the great discovery was celebrated with a party for the benefit of the sailors. They had been the first to pass through the Strait of Jacques Le Maire and the dangerous route discovered by Magellan 95 years before could now be given up for the safer and shorter passage through Strait Le Maire and the open water south of Tierra del Fuego. The ship had an easy voyage until it dropped its anchors before Juan Fernandez, the famous island of Robinson Crusoe. It was found to be the little paradise which Defoe afterward painted in his entertaining novel. Fresh water was taken on board and the voyage was continued. After a month of rapid progress with good eastern wind, land was seen. It was a small coral island, probably one of the Pauamuta group. Some men swam ashore, for it was impossible to use the boat on account of the heavy surf. They saw nothing but a flat, naked island and three strange dogs that did not bark. They found some fresh fruit, which they brought back to the ship for the sick people. Of course there were sick people. That was a part of every voyage but the illness was not serious. Four days later, they discovered a second island somewhat larger. This was inhabited. A canoe with painted savages came out to the Dutch ship. Since the savages spoke neither Dutch, Spanish, Portuguese, nor Malay, and the Dutch sailors did not know the Papua dialect, it was impossible to have conversation with these ignorant people who refused to come on board. Captain Shouten was not in need of anything, and he went on his way to try his luck at the next island. The natives had now discovered that there was no harm in this strange, large, floating object. They came climbing over all the sides of the ship. They stole brass nails and small metal objects, 
hid them in their woolly and long hair, and then jumped overboard. Everywhere the same thing happened. Shouten sailed from one island to the next, but of any new continent, however, he found no sign. When you look at the map, you will notice that this part of the Pacific is thickly dotted with small islands. Their inhabitants are great mariners, and in their little boats travel long distances. Shouten, with his big ship, caused great consternation among these simple fishermen, who hastily fled whenever they saw this strange big devil bearing down upon them. The trip was very pleasant, but it grew tiresome to discover nothing but little islands. At last, however, on the 10th of May, a big one with high mountains and forests was reached. It was called Cocos Island because there were many coconut trees near the shore. The inhabitants of the island, being unfamiliar with white people, were very hospitable and were willing to trade fresh coconuts and other edible things for a few gifts of trinkets and perhaps a small pocket knife. But jealousy was not unknown even in this distant part of the South Seas. Soon there was a quarrel between those canoes nearest to the ship which had obtained presents, and others too far away to receive anything. Also, there was a good deal of annoyance caused by the fact that the natives insisted upon stealing everything they could find on the ship. Finally, Schouten was obliged to appoint a temporary police of Hollanders, armed with heavy canes to keep the natives in their proper place. Otherwise, they might have stolen the ship itself, just as they had once tried to make away with all the boats. Upon that occasion, they had made their first acquaintance of firearms. When they saw what a little bullet could do, they respected the mysterious lead pipes, which made a sudden loud noise and killed a man at a hundred yards. Near Cocos Island, there appeared to be more mountainous land, and Shouten decided to visit it. The king came out in state in his canoe to greet the Dutch captain. He was entertained royally with a concert to show how much he appreciated the lovely music which he had just heard. The king yelled and shrieked as loudly as he could. It was very funny and everybody was happy, but this pleasant relation did not last long. For when the Hollanders were about to reciprocate the visit, their ship was attacked and several volleys from the large cannon were necessary to drive the natives away. These islands were called the Islands of the Traitors, because the king had tried to kill the people whom he had invited as his guests, and they are known today as the Ladrones. The Eintracht was now 1,600 miles to the west of Peru, and as yet the unknown southern continent had not been discovered. The wind continued to blow from the east. In a council of the officers of the ship, it was decided to keep a more northern course until it could be ascertained with precision where they were in this vast expanse of Pacific water and small coral islands. It was an unfortunate decision. The ship was then very near the coast of Australia. Sailing from one group of islands to the next, it had followed a course parallel to the northern coast of the continent for which the men were searching with great industry. After a while, they were obliged to land on another island for fresh water. They were again entertained by the king of the island. 
He gave a dinner and dance in their honour, and they had a chance to admire the graceful motions of the young girls of the villagers. They must have been among the Fiji Islands. Farther westward, however, they discovered that the attitude of the natives towards them began to change. Evidently, they were reaching a region where the white man was not unknown and was accordingly distrusted. Chinese and Japanese objects, here and there a knife or a gun of European origin, were found among the natives who came paddling out to the Dutch ship. Their map told them that they were approaching the domains of the East India Company. It had not been their intention to do this, but the reputed southern continent seemed to be a myth. It was time for them to try and reach home and report their adventures to the owners of the ship. Sailing along the coast of New Guinea, they at last reached the port of Ternate on the 17th of September. Here they found a large Dutch fleet which had just reached the Indies by way of the Strait of Magellan. This fleet was under command of Admiral von Spielbergen, who was much surprised to hear that the Eendracht had reached the Pacific through a new strait. He showed that he did not believe the story which Schouten told of his new discoveries. If there were such a strait, then why had it taken the Eendracht such a long time to reach Ternate, etc.? The Admiral suspected that this ship was a mere interloper sent by Le Maire to trade in a region where, according to the instructions of the East Indian Company, no other ships than those of the company were allowed to engage in commerce. This suspicion was very unpleasant for the brave Shouten, but there were other things to worry him. Before the expedition started, Old Le Maire, a shrewd trader, had thought of the possibility that his ships might not be able to find this unknown continent. In that case, he didn't want them to come home without some profit to himself, and he had invented a scheme by which he might perhaps beat the company at her own game. The Governor-General of the Dutch colonies at that time was a certain Gerard de Reinst, who was known to be an avaricious and dishonest official. Le Maire counted upon this, and to his eldest son he had given secret instructions which told him what to do in such circumstances. The idea was very simple. Young Le Maire must bribe Reinst with an offer of money, or whatever would be most acceptable to the governor. In return for this, Reinst would not be too particular if the Eintracht went to some out-of-the-way island and bought a few hundred thousand pounds worth of spices. It was a very happy idea, and it undoubtedly would have worked. Unfortunately, Reinst had just died. His successor was no one less than Jan Pieterzit Cohen, the man of iron who was to hammer the few isolated settlements into one strong colonial empire. Cohen could not be bribed. To him, the law was the law. The Eendracht did not belong to the East India Company. Therefore, it had no right to be in India, according to Cohen's positive instructions. The ship was confiscated. The men were allowed to return to Holland, and the owners were told that they could start a lawsuit in the Dutch courts to decide whether the Governor-General had acted within his rights or not. 
Young Lemaire sailed for Holland very much dejected. He had lost his father's ship, and nobody would believe him when he told of his great discovery of the new and short connection between the Pacific and the Atlantic. He died on the way home, died of disappointment. His hopes had been so great. He had done his task faithfully, and he and Shouten had found a large number of new islands and had added many thousands of miles of geographical information to that part of the map which was still covered with the ominous letters of terra incognita. Yet through an ordinance which many people did not recognise as just, he was deprived of the glory which ought to have come to him. His younger brother reached Holland on the 2nd of July of the year 1617, and a week later he appeared in the meeting of the Estates General. This time, the story which he told was believed by his hearers. The idea of an old man being the chief mover in equipping such a wonderful enterprise with the help of his sons, and only a small capital against all sorts of odds, assured Lemaire the sympathy of the man in the street. For a while, Governor-General Cohen was highly unpopular. Old Lemaire started a suit for the recovery of his ship and its contents. After two years of pleading, he won his case. The East India Company was ordered to pay back the value of the ship and the goods confiscated. All his official papers were returned to Lemaire. His name and that of the little town of Huon, given to the most southern part of the American continent and to the shortest route from the Atlantic to the Pacific, tell of this great voyage of the year 1618. End of chapter 9